morning. You better be glad that you got up this morning and you showed up because today's verses are, um, I feel like they're going to be enlightening and impactful and amazing for you. Uh, In some senses, I feel like it gives me a lot of hope and anticipation for what's coming next because if in the first five verses of 1 Peter we can get what we've gotten, um, I'm super excited about what the Lord is going to provide moving forward. Uh, So today we're going to be in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. The overarching title of our 1 Peter series is called Born Again to a Living Hope. Today is... A living hope, a living hope. So happy to see you here. I've been excited about this sermon all week, and I hope that I do um, a just job of uh, opening and rightly dividing the word for you today. Let's pray before we begin. Lord God, you are so good to us. You are holy. Um, You are blameless. You are undefiled. You sent your son who lived a holy life, a blameless life, and an undefiled life. And so it's only natural that he gave us a salvation that is as such. Lord, one of the greatest truths that a Christian can learn is that when you see a person in Christ, you see them as justified through the blood of Jesus as if they had never sinned. To know that a God can take enemies and strangers and foreigners and make them friends and close allies, children, uh, is one of the greatest mysteries revealed to the world. Lord, would you help us to never be, uh, to always be struck by that, to never be complacent or to never let that just fly right by us, that thought. Would you help us to take your word today, help it to be impactful, help it to be enlightening, help it to change our lives, not only that we take the knowledge, but that we take the knowledge and we use it to apply it to our lives to be more like you. We thank you for your son Jesus who died for us, who paid the penalty for our sin to purchase his place in heaven. We thank you for the spirit of God who lives in us, who draws us near to the Father every day. We pray that we would always live for you in a way that is pleasing in your sight. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Last week we began our study in 1 Peter and we spent much of that time on the background. We also looked at ways Peter used this introduction to set up the entire letter. So we looked at the author and the audience and then we looked at the encouragement of the first part of 1 Peter. And our encouragement came from three facts that are true for every believer. And the first is that we are foreknown. The Bible says that God not only foreknew the way to heaven, but he foreknew the who of heaven, the the audience of heaven, the occupants of heaven. And so one of the greatest spiritual truths that I've ever come to know is that the plan of God is not some reactionary, uh, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants, fly-by-night plan, but it is the plan of God before the foundation of the world, and I'm included in that. I'm a part of that. You are a part of that. Um, When we live in a tumultuous world, when we live in a crazy world, um, I don't know a greater sense of stability that can be found in knowing that God's plans are certain, God's plans are sure, and God's plans will be done. Will be done. 
will be enacted. And so we learned that we were foreknown. We learned that we are uh, a part of the family. You know, Hebrews talks about the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. We are a part of this great family of faith. Uh, Christianity, one of the things we try... One of the reasons we try to do some liturgy in our Sunday morning services is because we try to remind ourselves that Christianity is not just a vintage church thing on Sunday morning. We are not the only church that's doing it well. We're not the only church that's doing it right. As a matter of fact, through the Spirit of God and, the, and what Christ has done, there are countless churches all over the world that will meet on Resurrection Sunday that are honoring the Lord through their meeting. We are a part of that big family. And there is, an, I believe, an innumerable cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and that are included in the ones that are still here and included in the ones that are still to come that are testifying of the great work of Christ. And we get the pleasure to be a part of that. But not only that, the mystery of the gospel was revealed, uh, and we see Paul talk about this, we see others talk about this. The mystery of the gospel is revealed that not only are we part of the Christian family, but that, remember God's plan foreknown, written? We are a part of what the Old Testament was preaching to. This would have been a big deal to those people. I know that it sort of lost its luster to us, but it would have been a big deal to those people who were exiles, who were foreigners, who were out of their homeland, out of their inheritance. It would have been a huge deal to know that what the prophets foretold has come true in Jesus. And because of that, we are brothers and sisters with Abraham. We are brothers and sisters with David. We are brothers and sisters with all of those who are in Christ before they knew that they were in Christ. What a great story it is to be foreknown, to be a part of the family of God. And we also saw last week this great faith. That is that the work of salvation is done by a great God in an intricate way. Specifically what we discussed last week was the Trinitarian work of God. God the Father foreknew, he planned, he ordained, he made the steps. The Spirit sanctifies those who are in Christ and the Son has redeemed us by the sprinkling of of his blood. We I remind I reminded you last week and if you didn't do it you can do it again this week but to point it's a uh, it's pointing to Exodus 24 there talking about how the blood sacrifice works how the sprinkling works in the Old Testament whereas the sprinkling happened yearly the sprinkling happened regularly throughout Old Testament period Christ has come and his blood the blood of the spotless lamb was sufficient it was a sp- sufficient washing not just a sprinkling really but a sprinkling once and for all. And we're here today, and if you thought that was good, the engine, remember the engine of my old truck is sort of just getting revved up right now. Our sermon title today is called A Living Hope, which is important to note as we understand the context of the readers and understand who we are. Last week we discussed why hopefulness would have been necessary for these Christians. A living hope is an extremely important concept to hold on to, Uh, especially when we understand what these early Christians were facing. Uh, A living hope is extremely important to hold on to, especially as we understand the trials and the temptations that we face that may seem insurmountable, the problems in our relationships, the problems in our friendships, the problems in our own personal life, our inward self. But the Bible says to take heart, to take hope, because we are not without hope. We are not without victory, and our hope is living. Peter is also comparing the living hope to what we see in the Old Testament, Um, especially when we get into some of these words later. The living hope compared to 
what they were hoping in with the Old Testament prophets. They were hoping in the living hope, but all of the practices that they had were not necessarily uh, leading to living practices. They were fleeting. They were able to be defiled. They were not holy always. Uh, But that is not how we live today. One author said this, Election, obedience, sprinkling with blood, sanctification by the Spirit, the abiding Word of God, a living temple, a new priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God, the very mention of Christians being dispersed as foreigners. All these and other themes recall many elements of the covenant theology of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. Peter here is making a connection with the way God worked throughout the past to the way he is working at the time of this writing and the way he works in us and the way he works in the future. He is reminding the readers that the Spirit of God who came at Pentecost was the same Spirit of God that worked in Abraham, worked in Isaac, and worked in the prophets that led them to desire and long for the living hope found in Jesus Christ. And that through the Spirit of God, they wrote the words and the prophecies that foretold of Christ and His great work. And even gave readers a glimpse of how things would be accomplished. Much like we are called to holiness today... It's the same way that they were called to holiness in the Pentateuch. Be holy as I am holy. That's what we're going to see a little bit later in 1 Peter. Much like the Old Testament were, Old Testament believers were redeemed by the sprinkling of the blood, the New Testament Christians are redeemed by the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. Whereas the temple was the place that God dwelled and the people visited in the Old Testament, the temple is the place now where Christ dwells and it is in the heart of every single believer walking this earth. And it is where he dwells permanently. The Holy of Holies still exists in the heart of those who belong to God. It cannot be removed. It cannot be replaced. It cannot be scrubbed away by defilement. Later in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter gives us this image directly. He doesn't hold anything back when he says, he's comparing them to the, to the past. And then he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. The reason Peter uses this connection to a living hope is to now remind the readers that the Old Testament figures were just types, they were just images, they were just shadows of what was to come. That this living hope did not start with the first coming of Jesus, but it was finished or it was, it was uh, initiated with the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It started way before Jesus ever came to this earth, but it was initiated, this living hope, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That even the temple fades and the sacrifices fade, they are perishable, they are, they are fading, they can be defiled, but the new sacrifice in Christ is eternal. It is living. It is holy. It is blameless. It is undefiled, unfading. So we see the next section of our study comes from chapters one, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and it goes through chapter 2, verse 10. And it's really a summary of how all of the old covenant has been made full and fulfilled through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today I want to look at these first aspects, and I, I'm telling you, I've preached a sermon to myself like three times this week because it was, it's just that good. So why then do we have a living hope? There's four things you need to hold on to, and they're very important. Why then do we have a living hope? 
We have a living hope because God is merciful. We have a living hope because God is merciful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to what? His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We see Peter use a frequently used Old Testament doxology. They often use this doxology in the Old Testament. Blessed be the God and Father. Uh, or blessed be God. You know, some sort of praise that was blessing the name of God. But this time, he adds the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He adds Jesus Christ to the mix. We don't need to be reminded of this necessarily because you should know this right now, but God is one. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. We talked about it last week. So Peter here praising Jesus also on the same line of God is no mistake. It's important to note. It's important because it, it brings that unity together. Now, I know that the term Father is confusing at times. Uh, we know that Jesus was not created. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. So how does that work? Uh, father is not used here in the created sense. Father is used in the way a father plans and directs the way and how the son responds. We know that even though Jesus is not created, even though he is co-equal to God, as the son he was submissive to the father in every way. And he did the plan of the father. Nothing that the father or nothing that Jesus did was outside of what the Father wanted to do. That is not trying to break down the Trinity. What that's trying to show is continuity between the Godhead. It's trying to show that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are on the same page. It's not something you can break apart. It's interesting to note that whatever we have comes from God the Father through the Son. He has made, He has gathered up, and He has distributed all things necessary for living, living and giving, giving them to Jesus. All of the spiritual benefits of being in the Father come through Christ, and then they have been given to us. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. In Hebrews 1-2, we see that Jesus is the heir to all things, and we know that we are co-heirs along with God through Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying in verse 3, Blessed be the Father who causes all things to exist, and blessed be the Son who gives all of these things to his elect. What does he give? It says, according to his great mercy, we have been born again to a living hope. He gives great mercy. He gives new birth. He gives living hope. So God establishes in us a great hope through Christ. Hope is what the audience of Peter's letter would have needed. They would have absolutely needed it. Hope is what we all need. This is not some fond hope or longing hope like I wish this happens. I really want to go to Disney World. I want. Can we do this? I, I, I remember watching the game, the St. Louis Cardinals game last night, and I said, Lord, please don't yet let Yachty Molina get out on his last at bat as a professional baseball player. He got a hit, so I guess my prayers worked. Um, but I said, please don't let Yachty Molina get out on his last at bat. This is, that's a longing hope. 
That's a fond hope. That is not a living hope. That is not what is being discussed here. The hope that we have is not a longing hope. This is a sure hope. So when Peter says God through Christ has given us a living hope, he is saying it is a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in what Christ has done in the past. This is an eager and confident and expecting hope. It is a living hope. So what do living things do? They grow. They grow. It is not a dead hope. If it was a dead hope, it would cease to exist and it would rot away. It is a living hope. So only naturally, if those who are in Christ have a living hope, that means that their hope and their faith, it grows. Meaning that as the life of a believer goes on, the hope in Christ will only grow. Now, again, I have to give this disclaimer because I don't want you sitting here beating yourself up. (coughs) Excuse me. There will be times of stagnation. There will be times where your hope won't exactly grow. But if we have this living hope, then a great measure of our faith in Christ would be found in the strength of our hope as as Christ does a work in us as time goes on. This means over time there should be less doubt in our faith. It It means there should be a different type of doubt. There is doubt that's sort of acceptable. Um, Doubting yourself, that's acceptable. Doubting different things about how this is going to work out, like not completely trusting God, that's an acceptable doubt. It's not a good doubt. It's not good to doubt, but it's an acceptable doubt. But you don't, as you grow in faith and as you have experienced the living hope more and more, your doubt changes to, um, is God really, to can God, to hopefully God's got it. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the path that you want to go on. If we have this living hope, that is going to be a great measure of the strength of our life. Even though this audience faced and we faced momentary affliction, it is incomparable to the future and the hope that we have. We are grounded upon this future and final revelation of Christ Jesus. Because we have this living hope. Peter says, praise God and praise Jesus because we have been born again to a living hope. How did this living hope come about? According to his great mercy. God, through his foreknowledge, has elected his children and through his great mercy has given them a basis for faith. And even the necessary blessings for existing in a tumultuous world as a Christian. The Greek word here for the Greek word here for according to is kata and it is used also before foreknowledge. So in verse 2 um, Peter says according to the foreknowledge that is because of that is God caused it to because of his foreknowledge and in verse 3 he says according to his mercy. That means that because of mercy you have a living hope. Now that may seem small to you, but here's what it, here's how it relates. Because of God's work, he because of what he has foreknown, our faith is sure. Because God gave us mercy, we have faith at all. Okay? So that's important because if you are tempted to think that salvation is about you, 
When we diagnose and dissect the way these things were written, we find out that salvation is because of, it is according to what God has done. This mercy was bestowed upon us while we were still sinners. Romans 5, 8, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. This mercy is bestowed upon us through continual repentance. We remember 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is more evidence proving that salvation is Christ and it is all Christ. But we are getting, we're just getting started on that. The second thing I want you to see is this. We have a living hope because Jesus is alive. We have a living hope because Jesus is alive. Not just because of his great mercy. Not just because of his foreknowledge. But because Jesus is alive. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just an Easter Sunday morning, but an everyday message that every believer should hold on to as much as, if not more, than they hold on to any other Christian tenet. Christ has risen from the dead and he is alive forevermore. Peter says, by his mercy we have been Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The perfect life of Jesus is so important to our faith. It is absolutely important that Jesus came as man because man must pay for man's sin. It is absolutely important that Jesus lived a perfect life because only a perfect sacrifice would do. But it is imperative that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead as the cornerstone of the Christian faith. If Christ is not risen, then we should ignore what the apostle said and throw the Bible out because the Bible is trash if Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, we should shut the doors of Vintage Church and turn it into something else and do whatever we want to do with our lives because if Christ is not risen, there is no forgiveness of sins. If Christ is not risen, no one, dead or alive, has hope and especially not a living hope. But Jesus Christ is alive. He is well. He is living in the church from age to age until he returns. Our hope is a living hope because the God of our hope is a living God. Imagine with me for a second the status of, our, of the author of this letter and the audience. Can you imagine what Peter must be going through? Not too long I mean, it's a lot, a lot of time has passed, but can you imagine what Peter has been going through as he is bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you remember what Peter did right before Jesus died? Peter spent the last hours of Jesus' life denying him. Peter spent the last hours of Jesus' life turning his back on him. Now imagine the audience of this letter. They were exiles, they were foreigners. Their personal inheritance was inextricably tied to the land that they received. The land, the cattle, the livestock, that was what their inheritance was. But we find here that they are foreigners in a land that was not theirs. They are aliens. What does that mean? They have no inheritance. They have no inheritance. Now imagine how Peter must have felt as an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord. 
Imagine how all of those who had lost their earthly inheritance may have felt knowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All is lost on earth for them, but all is gained through Christ and his final victory. Now, we don't quite have the same problem. We have all of the inheritance. We have all of the inheritance. So whereas the audience of 1 Peter would have said, I have nothing, Christ is my everything, we have to say, I have everything, but it's nothing compared to Christ. It will be a fight for every single one of us throughout the rest of our lives. I have everything, but it's all nothing compared to Christ. We've been born again to a living hope according to, the, according to his mercy by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The next two points, if you, hadn't, if you hadn't gotten started yet, if you are not excited, if it hasn't sort of riled you up a little bit, the next two points should put you over the top, okay? We, we have a living hope because of the substance of our inheritance. That's the third. We have a living hope because of the substance of our inheritance. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What have you been born again to? An inheritance. The strength of our hope is directly tied to the inheritance we have. If our inheritance is weak, that is a dead hope. If our inheritance is strong and eternal, that is a living hope. One thing that has always comforted me about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is how many hundreds if not thousands of people would have had to be tricked if Christ had not risen from the dead. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples and the people close to Jesus saw him after he had risen. They touched him. Not only that, but put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for just a moment. Had this all been a lie, had this all been a power play, how many of the disciples you think would have died for this lie. How many of the disciples do you think would have died for this lie? And yet what we find is that every one of the disciples but one died for their faith. I'm here to tell you, I can be pretty I can be pretty convincing. I could lie if I wanted to and make you believe it. But someone puts a knife to my throat and I'm like, "Bro, it was a joke." Just kidding. Especially when everything that you have Everything that you have, everything that you've been hoping for is gone to that point. And yet, it was their hope. And yet, all of the disciples but one were executed for their faith. It was their hope and the fact and the significance of the resurrection that all but one of them lost their life. It must have been a living hope. It must have been a great inheritance. When Christ rose, he rose to the power given from the Father. But more than that, he gives all those in him the same power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Because just as he rose, we have all risen from death and from sin and from wrath. And we have been born again to this living hope. God makes all things new And he starts with us. Therefore, new birth is a sign of God's grace working in believers. One author said, our hope is anchored in the past, Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present, Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future, Jesus is coming. This is our inheritance. 
But Peter goes on to sort of double down on this. He doesn't just tell us that we're born again to a living hope. He tells us what this living hope consists of or what is the substance of this living hope. And he says first that it's imperishable. This living hope is imperishable. I'm reminded of Old Testament imagery of the inheritance each tribe was given. Even as they wandered through the wilderness, even as they had not yet taken hold of that inheritance, that inheritance was still theirs. That's something to be That's something to consider. But it was often laid waste. And at the time of the birth of Jesus, the the kingdom of Israel did not exist. Their inheritance, while a type of a future inheritance, was still perishable. But it is not so with what Christ has done. Our inheritance is imperishable. The word here means not subject to decay and cannot be worn out by time. And this word is only used for heaven realities. What else is imperishable? God himself. What else is imperishable? God's word. What else is imperishable? Our resurrected bodies. The word here imperishable means that it cannot be worn out. It cannot decay. It cannot be laid to waste. Every church building, friends, can be bulldozed. Our bodies can be laid to waste by those who hate us. The earth can be destroyed, but not our inheritance found in Christ. There is no outside force that can crush or steal what God has done. Because when he does something, it's final, it is sure, it is irrevocable, it is imperishable. Our living hope is imperishable. He also says this, our living hope is undefiled. Another word for this is it can never spoil. The inheritance that was given to God's people was the best of the best of the land. But they allowed foreign gods and foreign beliefs to come in and defile their inheritance. Here Peter tells us that our inheritance is unstained by sin. Undefiled. Meaning that if we are in Christ, we may still sin... But we are seen by the Father as if we had never sinned at all. This is justification. Now, Paul also says, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. This is not something we should do. We should take the fact that God looks at us as justified, as sinless through Christ, and it should motivate us highly to not sin. If that's what God is willing to do for us, if God is willing to, while we are still sinners, die for us, if he is willing to, while we are still sinners, keep us, if he is willing to, while we are still sinners, give us an inheritance in heaven, then the least we could do is try to sort of mitigate sin in our life, is try to push sin aside, is try to fight temptation with all that we have. Do you know that one of the major reasons our inheritance is sure and is final at the point of salvation is because Jesus is without sin. He is the God who saves. And he ever lives to intercede for us. He is our inheritance. Not streets of gold. Not heavenly mansions. Not anything that is uh, beautiful in the sense that we find beauty, but Christ himself. If you think that your inheritance is based upon an act of faith or even good works, then it might be common to deduce that you can lose that inheritance. Like your earthly inheritance, our spiritual inheritance has nothing to do with what we have done 
or do, but what our Father has done. But we do know that our inheritance is not just in Christ, but it is Christ. And Christ cannot be defiled, so we cannot either. If we are in Christ, our lives will be shaped after this. No sin or good works makes us saved. More saved, no sin or good works makes us unsaved. It is the work of Christ in us, saving us, living in us, and doing His will. What else does Peter say about our inheritance? It is unfading. It never grows dim or never loses its beauty is what he says. Israel and inherit, Israel's inheritance was a type of what was to come, but ours is the real thing. Eventually the fertile land of Canaan was dried up by God's judgment. Eden was destroyed. But nothing can make our faith lose its luster. On the flip side of that, our inheritance does not need polishing or final touches. It does not need help or explanation by us or anything else. We don't need to try to explain away the Bible or try to make it look better than what it says. It is finished. It is perfect. It is unchangeable. And it is kept on display by us as we walk in faith. It is unfading. The Lord doesn't need you to explain the difficult things of the Bible away. He just needs you to trust that they're His words and that they're true and take them as that. He doesn't need you to explain the hard things of faith away to your more um, progressive friends or to your more non-believing friends. He just needs you to speak the truth of the gospel into their lives because it is an unfading crown of glory that God has. We not need to explain away the Bible. We not need to try to make it look better. It's finished. It's perfect. It's unchangeable. And it should be kept on display for all believers. Friends, no power of hell, no scheme of man, including ourselves, could ever pluck us from the hand of God. Because the same power that made our inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is the same power that's keeping it that way in us until he returns. Leads to the last idea. We have a living hope because we are guarded by God's power. Look at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance is kept in heaven. It's interesting here because Peter goes from the, the idea of our and we're to what? Kept in heaven for you. Peter at this point is talking general terms about our inheritance. And now he shifts to the article, you. The inheritance is kept for you. Meaning that this is not some general saving or some impersonal God with an impersonal touch. This inheritance doesn't go to some impersonal audience. But it is kept for you. For you. Other translations use the word shielded, which simply means to, kept, to be kept under guard. Not only has our inheritance been kept, but it has been kept for you. Therefore, you are kept. God is the keeper of the heavenly jailhouse, and he has arrested you to a life of faith, a new life. And he will not let you out on bond. He will not let you out on parole. 
<coughs> you are kept and guarded until the day that you meet him, not escaping, no jailbreaks, no working your way out of this great work that he has done. Another cool thing about kept is that it is in the perfect passive participle tense, which means that the kept salvation is a completed past activity with the results that are still coming now. That is to be continually guarded. What is being guarded? Or what, it is, what it, is it being guarded for? It's being guarded for the last day. It is the imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and not only that, kept living hope that will belong to us till the day of Christ. Why, why just the day of Christ? Because when he returns, we don't need hope anymore. We don't need hope when he returns. When he returns, our hope has been made alive. Our hope has been made there in our face. We'll be with Him. You don't need hope in a thing that you have. Or a person that you have. It's being guarded. It's being kept. It's being protected. Friends, our faith is sure. Our faith is complete. How do we know this? Look at Peter's last words in the section, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We know that our faith is sure and that ours and that it's ours because our faith is being kept, but it's also being proven by two things. Our faith, our living hope is being proven by two things. Our faith is being proven by this, that it is kept by the power of God. And it's proven by our continual walking in faith. Can I give you some comfort today? All of the promises that I have read, imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept by God, are continually being kept and guarded by the power of the almighty, infinite, matchless God of the universe. God's power is working continually and steadily to keep his plan and guard your salvation until you are ready to receive it. If you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you are in Christ. So stop worrying because God is faithful to his plan. Even when we are not faithful, he is faithful. He is faithful to keep his children. And that faithfulness extends farther than anyone can say or anyone can do. It's farther than any sin you can commit. It's farther than any running. And I'm convinced that if we are in Christ, we will always be in Christ. And he will bring even the furthest runner back to him. Our faith is a sure faith because God has promised it so. And he cannot deny himself. Though the heirs may be in peril right now, it is God's power that protects our faith. Though sin may creep into our life right now, it is God's power through Jesus that sees your salvation as in Christ, as imperishable, as undefiled, as unfading. That is justification, to be seen by God as if we had never sinned. So God is sure. That is why faith is sure. But how else do we know that our faith is sure? Because our faith is growing. Our faith is growing. If you, are in, if you are in Christ, your faith will grow. I tell people this all the time. People who become new Christians, people who come back to the faith, 
people who have struggled in the faith, who have not, who have not seen like maybe as much growth as they want. I tell them this all the time. Slow down. Slow down. You know the whole missing the forest uh, because of the trees type thing. I think that's it, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. Shouldn't use things unless I remember them for sure. There we go. Um, so you, you have this desire to, to grow in faith, and that's great. But you also must understand that anything worth having takes time. It takes work. You don't get to sort of live the majority of your life on the path to destruction and then just walk in faith like you're supposed to the next day. But the measure of a Christian is not how quickly they get it. The measure of a Christian is how they're able to endure and how their faith and their heart is growing in regeneration and new life over time. So even if it's small changes... And even if there are some set setbacks, our faith will strengthen over time. And the power of God, which works in the continued strengthening in our, of our faith, is a true sign that Christ is in us and we are His forever. And we know this about how God preserves His saints. Only those who are in Christ will make it to the end. And also, all of those who are in Christ will make it to the end. Friends, you have been born again to a living hope. A hope that is because of the foreknowledge of God, that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept for you. And it is guarded. Guarded for what? Till the day that Jesus returns. No, no words could give me more confidence in this fact that salvation in Christ is a once and for all thing. I don't know what you've believed before, but you objectively and definitively cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose it. Now, this doesn't mean that you can live the life you live, live, do whatever you want to do, and never repent, never believe, never grow, and that you're fine. What that means is that you're in rebellion still, and you don't believe in Christ. Because a salvation in Christ is something that cannot be enacted in the life of a person and also not change them. If it is enacted in the life of a person, it undoubtedly will change them. Have faith in Christ. Have faith in the work that He has done. Trust Him. Live for Him. Follow Him. Because He has a salvation, a living hope that He is holding for you. And He will keep you and He will keep it until it's your possession. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is true. It gives us an everlasting hope. It gives us a peace like we cannot describe. Lord, help us to follow you, to trust you in a way that we never have. Help every day to be a new walk in faith. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.